Good morning. Uh, Yes, we're in a series. uh, It's called Who Am I? There are three questions that, listen, I need answers to, and every one of us do as well. No matter where you're at uh, in your relationship with God, whether you uh, fully committed to Him, uh, you're still thinking through the claims of Christ, uh, or if if you you have no connection at all, those there's three questions that we got to have answered in our life. The first week we talked about the question, "Who am I?" And as we sung about, the beauty of the answer to that question is, "I am who He says I am." Again, it doesn't matter what I think of myself. It doesn't matter what the world says about me. It doesn't matter what my bank account says to me. It doesn't matter my vocation, my location, or anything else. What matters ultimately is what God says about me. And I know that by understanding who Jesus is. All right, If he truly is the Son of God and he did all that he has done for you and for me, then we are people of great worth. And we are people that can be set free from all the junk that we have experienced in our life and even will experience by trusting in him. So in this message, let's go ahead and put pillar number one down. All right. Jesus is the son of God. We explained that two weeks ago. Now it is assumed. All right. For the rest of this time, we've already wrestled with that. And we have found with solid evidence that Jesus is the son of God. The second week question that we asked was... Uh, And it dealt with the Bible, okay? Why am I here? Why am I here? It's one thing to know who we are. It's another thing to know why we're here. Why do we exist? Now, the world will tell us one thing. Our hearts will tell us other things. Popular uh, actors and actresses, because they're professionals, okay, at life. Okay, they become somehow the great spokesman for humanity. Okay, they tell us what life is all about and why we exist. Nature tries to tell us, and we learned last week that all of that stuff is futile. It's it's all ever changing. Uh, nature even is pretty fatalistic. Okay, we're here by accident, but there's one thing that gives us an accurate picture of who we are and why we're here. And that is the Word of God. And we spent time hammering on the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Word of God last week. So pillar number two is now down. We're going to assume these truths are at play as we move to question number three. One, Jesus is the Son of God. We've proved that. Okay. Number two, the Bible is truly the word of God, can be trusted. Everything that can be proven about the Bible has been proven. So on those things that we take by faith, we have strong faith, not some sort of a shaky, blind faith. Sure hope this happens. No, but because of the faithfulness of God through all the past and the present, we can trust him for the future, which brings us to our destination. With those two pillars in play, now we're going to answer the question, where am I going? I'm going to warn you, it's going to be rough, okay? It's going to be a a rough time, but you know the the beauty of it? In order for us to really find the truth, we got to dig deep. We got we to gotta stop putting band-aids over our feelings and emotions, and we got to go straight to the problem. If there's, if there's uh, any kind of infection, we need to get it out. And so that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to begin by a statement. Life is hard. Amen. Exactly. Amen. Life is hard. Sometimes it's 
seems unbearable. And you know, that's not just for poor people. Life is hard, and the hardness of life affects every socioeconomic level. Every race, every religious person or unreligious person, it affects everybody. I mean, even in the Bible, which we have proven to be truth, okay, uh, there's a, a prince named Mephibosheth. Now, long story short, he was the son of Jonathan, who was a prince. His dad was King uh, Saul. So even in a, in a palace, things don't go well. All right, you, you're considered a prince. Think about it. You and I are considered children of God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Okay, we have a picture of a man named Mephibosheth. This guy was a, a, a prince to Prince uh, Jonathan, and who was the uh, the grand the grandson of King Saul. Things didn't go well for him. He had a hard life. He got dropped when he was young, and he was broken. At an early age in his life, he was running away from enemies constantly. We see this happen even today. Think about it. World War I started because a prince got assassinated. It's one thing to know who you are. It's another thing to know what your purpose is. But there's something even more pressing. There's something that's even more eating at our soul. Where am I going? And listen, life is hard. And I think there's three reasons why life is hard. I'm just going to start the first one and just go after it. Many times it's my fault that my life is hard. It's it's on me. See, I make dumb decisions. I spend money I don't have. 28 days later, something happens into my mailbox. Ooh, I can discover something. No, you discover the discover bill is what you discover. I become mastered by a card. I try to escape by getting a visa. That was bad. Okay, sorry. But listen, I spend money I don't have. I do what feels good in the moment only to hurt myself and those I love. In the process. I let my anger make huge decisions for my life. Which always comes back to haunt me. I cut people with my words. Thus harming the very thing that God called me to pursue. Which are relationships. And then I look at my life. And I say I know what I should do. I know what I should do. But instead, I do what I want. And by doing so, I dig my hole deeper and deeper and deeper. So sometimes it's me. Life is hard. And a third of the problem is me. Sometimes life is hard because of others, right? Boss gives me impossible demands. My spouse may cut me down or leave. Kids make choices that rip our hearts out. We feel trampled on and disrespected by those around us. Wars 
Take family, friends, and limbs. Drunk drivers destroy property and lives. Senseless violence creates fear every time we go out in public. Sometimes it's because of others. That's another third of the problem. But there's another final third, and that's the fact that this world takes so much away from us as well, doesn't it? Natural disasters leave many people empty without house, home, security, place to lay their head. Cancerous and other diseases ravish our bodies. Some of us, our child, our child is in the hospital while our 102-year-old neighbor is dancing on her birthday. How in the world can we exist in the midst of all this that's going on to us? Is this what we to expect from life? Is this it? Listen, if God is good, why the pain? That brings us to the message of the Bible. You see, the Bible says all the way in Genesis chapter 1, And by the way, the Bible already assumes God like we have. The Son of God has always been. There was never a time when He wasn't. And so when He chose, according to His own beautiful, wonderful time, He chose to speak creation into existence. And when He did, created the stars, the galaxies, the plants, the animals, the seas, the mountains, humanity, you and I, He created everything Good. That's why we experience so much good in this world. Same God created us. God made you and I to have a special relationship with Him forever. Think about that. Our loving Creator who formed the first man and woman... Out of the dust and out of a rib. Now I'm hungry for lunch. <laughs> okay, think about it. He, he formed them, was, was so specially, intimately involved in the creation of man and woman. And he created them to have a relationship with them. So that they would know their creator and he would know them. It was, it was a beautiful scenario that took place in a beautiful, wonderful, lush garden called Eden. But if everything started out so good, why do bad things happen? A word? Sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And death through sin. So that death spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. When Adam and Eve chose to eat that garden, chose to rebel against God, although God has given them everything they could ever want, need, or ask, they were tricked by Satan to not trust God and to trust in themselves. And so they chose to disobey God by taking fruit of a tree that God said, you can have everything but, and they decided to be their own gods. And instead... We're given the gift of death. 
Sickness, pain, and death came about because of Adam's rebellion. Sin, sickness, pain, and death come about because of my rebellion. Sin, sickness, pain, and death come about because of your rebellion. That's what it says. And because of this sin, we have been separated from the very God who created us. And we, because we are full of sin, are unable to fix our problem. At this point, you're saying, wow, you're the chipper one this morning, aren't you? So what is left for us to do? Listen, if we can't do anything about it, there's nothing left for us to do. We need someone who can do something about it to enter the scene. You understand? I mean, the ship is going down and there's nothing we can do to solve it. Something outside of us must come in and rescue us. Enter God. You see, God knows everything. It's his creation. He's involved in his creation. He has not left us to be alone. So God sees our problem. And he loves us too much to keep us stuck in our problem. So Jesus, the very son of God that we talked about, the very son of God, he comes to earth to do this, to take away our sin, to take away our pain, our guilt, our shame and death. How would he do such a thing? How is it possible that God can take all that away from us? He does it by taking it upon himself. He does that by bearing our sin, taking our penalty, our just deserts, and putting it upon himself and paying the wrath of God for us. To put it simply, Jesus Christ pays for our sins. And at this point, I know he's the Son of God, but how do I know he's my Savior? How do I know he's my Savior? How can I believe that all my sins are forgiven? How can I know that I will go to heaven when I die? That's a good question. Think about this. We know he's the Son of God, okay? He did awesome miracles to prove it. He has been prophesied for thousands of years of who he, who he is, what he was going to do, and he did it absolutely perfectly. No doubt he's the Son of God. The Word of God has already proven itself to be true and reliable. So the question is, can the Son of God and everything that says in the Word of God, can something or someone give me assurance that my sins are forgiven. Listen, one week before Easter, 2,000 years ago, one week before Easter, the disciples, these are 12 people, plus actually there was hundreds of, of people who, who listened to Jesus and were, were called disciples as well, all right? But specifically he had these 12, the, who would later be the apostles, okay? These 12, they were so excited week before Easter 
because they brought Jesus into Jerusalem. The Bible says this, excuse me, the Bible says that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's in Luke 19. Think about it. We call it uh, uh, Palm Sunday. Jesus goes to the temple riding on a donkey. Okay, that's pretty crazy. But it was also fulfillment of something that happened hundreds of years ago. Further evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. So these disciples were pumped. They were excited. They are now visually seeing Jesus the Messiah, triumphantly come into Jerusalem. That was awesome. Five days later. Five days later. Their hope was dying on a cross. The disciples, for lack of a better term, Put all their chips on Jesus. All their eggs in a basket. And it was Jesus. Think about what the disciples had done thus far. When you read the Gospels, you see that they left their jobs. They left their security. They left their homes. Some even had to leave family in order to follow Jesus. They gave up everything. And all that sacrifice, all that following that these disciples gave up, led them to a cross. And death, the death of their one great hope. One of the disciples, he was walking down a road to Emmaus. Listen to what he says. He says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what was going on in the disciples' mind that weekend. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Listen, while Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't alone. There were two others, a criminal on his, on his right and on his left. Even one of the criminals who was on the cross clung to a bit of hope. He knew that his punishment... He was a criminal and he knew what he did was wrong. But he knew that the guy in the middle, Jesus, was innocent. He he knew that from all the stories. He may have even heard Jesus a few times. I don't know. But he had assurance in his mind that Jesus was innocent. So you know what this guy did on his last breaths? He put his hope in Jesus, asking him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus dies. What does that mean? Chaos? Sure felt like it. Just like the way you and I feel sometimes, right? Chaos. Some of us put our hope in a job and then we get the pink slip. Some of us put our hope in our exercise and our eating well. And then the doctor says, I need you to come back in. Many of us here 
They put our hope in Jesus to give us a clean bill of health, a full bank account, nice family members, amending of relationships. And when those things don't happen, God really in control? This is chaos. This is chaos. So what does this mean that Jesus dies on a cross? Does it mean chaos? Or does it mean sovereignty? Jesus told his disciples many times what was going to happen to him. But they chose not to listen. They chose not to believe. How many times do we go to God in prayer? We're like, God, I need these these requests fulfilled. And then God tells us what to do. We're like, no, I don't want to do that. Just fulfill my request. Think about it. The disciples were saying, Jesus, come, bring your kingdom here. Free, redeem Israel. And Jesus says, I will, but here's what's got to happen first. And their answer is no. That's not going to happen. I won't let that happen. Is it chaos or is it sovereignty? For Jesus told his disciples many times, including this one in Luke 18... Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock and insult him and spit on him, and they will flog and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. So, Jesus, Good Friday, dead on a cross, didn't have to break his bones, if you know the story, it was getting close to a special time for Israel called, you know, the, the Passover weekend. And, and during that, that special Sabbath day, excuse me, and during that special time, they needed to get all work taken care of. Well, it would have been work and other things to take care of these three men. So those who were still living, they actually broke the bones in the legs so that they would quickly die. It's, it's a sad, horrifying, as a matter of fact, there's a word for it, to be crucified. It's called excruciating. Nothing else compares to it. And so two criminals' legs were broken, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead because he gave up the Spirit. And so now we have a a dead Messiah on a cross. What does his death mean? What does his death mean? Listen very carefully. The death of Jesus means absolutely nothing if he is still dead. It means absolutely nothing We would still be, you and I and everyone who has ever lived and breathed the name of Jesus, we would still live hopeless and stuck in our sin. But if he rose again, that changes everything. That changes everything. So we need to get to some proof here. Some proof... Time is always going to be against me. But remember, last week we proved in the reliableness, the trustworthiness of the Word of God, 
So, with that said, let's look to Scripture, okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what the Scripture says. Acts chapter 1, after Jesus, uh, after he dealt with his sufferings, okay? The, the cross, the death, the burial. After his sufferings. If you have the New King James or the King James Version, it says, after his passion. All right, the passion of the Christ, the suffering of Christ. After this, the scripture says, he presented himself to them, to the disciples, and he gave them many convincing, what? Proofs, that's right, that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So I'm about to tell you, I mean, and I would love to, to just dig into more and I'd love to have Jesus write down a list of all the different things that he did and showed them. But listen, I'm going to talk about two of the greatest proofs, two of the greatest proofs of his resurrection. Number one, his greatest proof is his presence. That, let's just stop there for a minute. Isn't that like a duh? Uh why do you believe Jesus is, is alive to the disciples? Because uh, I just had lunch with him. All right. Where are you getting this from? Uh, remember the Bible? It's already been proven reliable and truthful. So now I have a leg to stand on when I say that, right? I'm not just one of those weird old-timey preachers. The word of God is true. And if you don't believe it, then you're a sucker. I'm not going to do that. Okay? We're going to give reliable. We're going to give truth so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is God's word. Listen, the Bible is true whether you believe it or not. Okay? If, if the truth and the trustworthiness was on, of the Bible was based on my faith, that is a weak Bible. But if it's already true, then it's up to me to, to, uh, to believe in it for myself. Because it's already the truth. And I come to that area. You remember those old bumper stickers that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Cut the middle part out. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you believe it. It's God's truth and that settles it. So we do well to believe it. All right, so my, sorry, didn't mean to chase that rabbit. <laughs> but anyways, uh, listen, the, the greatest proof of the resurrection is the presence of God. Was it the empty tomb? No. It wasn't. The greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus was his presence. The empty tomb did not convince the disciples. His presence did. They went to the tomb. Man, that's crazy. Maybe the Romans took them. You know, I remember even there were, there were ladies who went to the tomb first. They went up to someone they thought was the gardener. And they said, Mr. Gardener, Mr. Gardener, what do they do with his body? He turns around. Oh, it's Jesus. Presence. Now they believed. Now they believed. The disciples, I don't know if I believe their testimony. That's kind of weird. That's kind of crazy. Man, he's dead. Our hope is gone. Jesus comes to the room. I believe. There was one of the disciples who wasn't there. His name is Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. They all doubted. Poor Thomas. They all doubted. Thomas comes in. Hey, guys. Oh, we believe in the Messiah. No, come on. I have to believe him. I mean, I got to see the, the nail scars in order to believe. Jesus comes by the next week. Hello. Come and believe. Oh, it's the presence the presence is what made the difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8. You got to read this. You got to read this. We've established who Jesus is. We've established the reliability of the word of God. And if those are true, read this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to, uh, 3 to 8 says this. Paul the apostle, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, this is it. 
You, you rest everything on it. If, if this is not true, then you're living in vain, Christians. I'm living in vain. Listen to what he says. Here's what a first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He died for a purpose. For our sins. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that's not it. And he appeared to Cephas, who is a Peter. Okay, And then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Well, Jesus' raising is probably just a hallucination. The ladies saw him, you know, back then, the, the Jerusalem, they didn't have the right type of permits for marijuana back then, so people may have... No, listen, 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. That is not a hallucination. That is a reality. 500 people, the women saw and believed. The disciples had to see in order to believe. He goes on to say this. Most of them, this is important. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Listen to this. Most of whom are still living. That was, by the way, one of our evidences that the Bible is true. There are eyewitnesses that CNN, ABC, MSNBC, Fox News can go and interview Right now, and they could have proven it wrong. But there were 500 people, many of those, who were still living at the time that that Paul wrote this letter. So this is real-time events going on. And Paul says, and they're still living. Go ask them. Though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Folks, this is amazing. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dad, okay? Same mom, different dad. He did not believe in Jesus until the resurrection. His brothers and sisters thought Jesus was mad when he was alive. Thought he was insane. But listen, coming back from the dead, that reorients your priorities. And James not only believed, he lived that life and he suffered and he died a cruel death because of his trust and belief in his brother. More than that, his Messiah, the Son of God. Listen, where would the hardest place be to convince people of Christ's resurrection in the first century? Where do you think the hardest place? It'd be pretty easy to take a boat and to go to America, okay? You know, you could even start maybe in like Salt Lake City or somewhere. I don't know. But you, you, can, you can create your own religion and people may believe it. The hardest place to convince people of the resurrection of Jesus would have been Jerusalem. And that's where it began. Are you kidding me? The very people that were surrounded there could have easily proven the resurrection false. And they didn't. Forgive me, I'm going to read a uh, quote from Josephus who I read last week. Just to verify this point. Remember, he has no claims to Christianity. He's just a historian and he writes this. In his book called Antiquities, he says, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. See, he didn't recognize, he just, he's a wise man. Clearly, he was a historical figure. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and among the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. 
They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. According, uh, accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. I mean, this is contemporary. This is AD 37 to 100. A historian is writing this. And he's like, man, I think he rose again. Well, you think the disciples, they must have just made it up. Greatest proof number two. Greatest proof number two. Number one is his presence. You can't deny that. Proof number two is very similar to the first one. The testimony of the apostles. Now listen very carefully to this because we had to bring in some uh, philosophers and some uh, scholars to, to really help me to understand what this is about. You see, a lot of people, listen, very important. This is so important. Don't miss these words. A lot of people died for a lie, but they believed it was true. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Okay, this is what philosophers, sociologists, they say this. Lots of people die for a lie, but they believed it was true. Meaning they're not going to die for a known lie. Think about the suicide bombers. Okay, think about terrorists. They believe 100% that what they're doing is right. In their minds, right? And that's why they do it. But it was a lie. Gary Habermas Okay, a philosopher, um, great Christian thinker. He says this, Followers of other religions and causes have willingly suffered and died for their beliefs. Even atheists have willingly died for the cause of communism. This does not mean that their beliefs were true or worthy. Listen, liars make poor martyrs. Okay? You can say all you want, but when your head's in the chopping block, you go, recant! Liars make poor martyrs. Extreme acts do not validate the truth of their beliefs, but willingness to die indicates that they regarded their beliefs as true. Which brings me to this statement. The greatest proof, number two, the apostles' testimony was this. If the resurrection was a lie, the disciples would have known it. And they would have recanted long ago. Again, you may say, well, lots of people have died for a great cause. Listen, their great cause died on a cross. All their hope on Friday was gone. You don't start a revelation, a revolution like that. They believed that Jesus was going to reign as king and Messiah. The cross messed it up. All hope was lost. Their cause ended on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And if the grave was it, the cause would have been over. You get that? The cause would have been over unless he rose again. If he rose again, that changes Everything. You say, well, that's not possible. Only God can do that. I 100% agree. Only God can do that. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
proves this. It proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves that your sin is forgiven. For Jesus to say, I forgive you of your sins, go and sin no more, and he dies and stays in a tomb, I'm like, did it work? I'll never know. No, you know because the tomb is empty. If, if he defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, then everyone who dies in him will be raised to walk in newness of life. That is what the resurrection proves. It proves that my sin, your sin is forgiven. That death is defeated. That God keeps his promises. That God is sovereign over all. Even when we thought it was chaos. The things that you're dealing with now in life, it's not random. There is a God who knows. There is a God who has walked that path before you. The resurrection proves that you will live forever in heaven. Resurrection, listen to this. The greatest tragedy on earth. The crucifixion and the death of the Son of God. The greatest tragedy on earth paved the way for the greatest victory. Victory over sin, death, and hell. So, listen church, listen guests, the resurrection does answer the question, where am I going? And it responds with a hearty, amen. Amen. I know exactly where I'm going because of the empty tomb. I know That if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I am going to heaven. No matter what happens here on earth, the things that you are currently dealing with, whether of your own sin, whether the sin of others, or just the fact that you live in a fallen world, no matter what happens, our present, our today, is filled with Christ's presence We just sang that he stands in the fire beside us. And not only is our our present filled with his presence, our future is secure by God himself. So listen to this. This is so amazing. To the criminal who was on the cross, remember him? The criminal who was on the cross, as well as everyone who puts their faith and and trust in Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. Today you will be with me in paradise. That is a promise from the very lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. A promise that he will keep. The proof is the empty tomb. So church, guests, listen. Life is not going to be easy. And if you choose to follow Christ, it's probably going to get harder. No, it's going to get harder. Following Christ in a world that's anti-Christ ends badly. But it can be bearable. Because my dumb mistakes are forgiven. I can now forgive others who sin against me. Why? 
Because I know that I have been forgiven. Paul the Apostle would say in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. Listen, you are going to be offended. We have offended God in the most heinous way possible. And He has chosen to forgive all those who put their trust in Him. And now He calls you to live the resurrected life. Family member, your friend, your coworker, your boss, your employee, your schoolmate, your neighbor, all of those people. As of today, if you want to live the resurrected life, forgive them. Forgive them now. Because Christ has forgiven you. Because of Christ's resurrection, you and I can overcome all offenses. What about the troubles and the diseases here on the earth? Say this with fear and trembling. Our troubles... Our diseases, cancer, are now a part of your testimony. It didn't take God by surprise. Is it possible that God may use your very ailment to show people sufferings of Christ so that whether you and I live six more months six more years or 60 by the way we live our resurrected life people around us have the opportunity to live forever that they may know where they are going. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to live the resurrected life? The resurrection shows us that even our greatest tragedies can pave the way for the greatest victories. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Listen, if you are in Christ, nothing can change your destiny. Nothing can separate us from Christ and his love for us. Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God, of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or or danger or sword? He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, guests, if you know Christ, you have no fear because your future 
Your, you have no fear of your future because anything that could have robbed us of eternal life has been overcome by Christ. Christ said it himself in John 16. He said, tribulation's going to come. Get ready for it. Before that, he says the reason why, because we're his. Tribulation is going to come. The world is going to be against you, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So I close with this. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we have died with him. And if we die with him, we are going to be raised with him. Basically, to all those who trust in Christ have traded this life for the next. That's why we need to serve in the nursery Whenever we, 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 we may want to be in here and listen to some awesome music and an, eh, an alright sermon. You know, we want to be in here. We need to be back there. We need to be back there so that other people can hear. We need to serve our youth knowing that our eternal destiny is secure. And we want our kids to know that they know that they know that they can have it as well. We get involved in small group because we want to disciple people so that they can know who they are. Where they're going and why they breathe. We know that now. Paul would say to live is Christ. We're here for him and we're here for other people to die is gain. That needs to be the mark of everybody here. We've gotten everything we need. So now, what do we do? We rest in the goodness of our Savior. Paul would say this. As he closes in on the truth of the resurrection and what that means for us. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15 and I close. Behold, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this, imperishable, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But here it comes. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, church, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The disciples heard Jesus say over and over again his sovereign plan and they chose not to listen. And when his plan came to pass, they felt hopeless. Just like the disciples, Jesus is telling you and I what's going to happen next. We know where we're going to go. The question is, will you listen and believe? God wants us to trust him no matter what. God is sovereign even over death. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much the truth of your word. I don't have to live in this world 
tossed to and fro by every wind of knowledge or doctrine or religion or, or, or anything, God, I can rest in the truth of the very words from the lips of God. God, I thank you, Lord, that we can know where we're going if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died so that we can live, who gives eternal life to all of those who would come to him in faith. So God, my prayer this morning is twofold. Father God, please, if someone is without Christ, they don't know where they're going. Or maybe they understand enough of God's word to know that they know where they're going and they don't want to go there. They want to escape being separated from you in a place called hell, but they want to, they want to experience the love of God in Christ that brings them to heaven. God, my prayer is that they would be bold enough to come down to talk to somebody, maybe someone who invited them or someone maybe in the pew next to them or maybe one of our counselors up front. God, give them the courage and the boldness to call out to you in faith and repentance, God. God, I pray for for those who are yours. But God, we have gotten so trapped into what the world says about us The world says how we should live. That we may have even gotten muddy about the fact that this is not our home. We're we're investing here. And it's all going to fail. But God, there is a greater home that we are called to live for. And it's a home that we're going to spend eternity with. So God, my prayer, Lord, is that you would speak to us all. Show us exactly where we're at. God, feel the pulse of our heart. Help us to know that you are the great God and the Savior who deserves our praise, our honor, and our life. God, help us to be bold enough to decide once again to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Listen, if you're